You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 207 is Jason Narducci. He started playing live at the age of 10, and you are right now hearing his band Verboten live in 1983 playing a song called He's a Panther. As he was completing college, he and cellist Allison Chesley formed the duo Jason and Allison playing Jason's songs. This morphed into Verbo, which released two albums in 1997 and 2000, the first of which was produced by... Bob Mould. Jason has now played for many years in Bob Mould's band. He's also played bass with Super Chunk, with Robert Pollard of Guided by Voices, various other famous people. He's revived his singer-songwriter career, putting out three albums as a split single, and we'll be discussing Bitten by the Sound from their most recent album, Amplificado, 2021, and from their first album, Fragmented World, 2014, we'll talk about the song Monolith, and we'll look back to Verbo from their 1997 album, Chronicles, to talk about the song Fan Club. We'll conclude by listening to Blood Break Ground, the version from the 2022 EP Kayado, which reworks six split single songs acoustically. For more information, please see splitsinglemusic.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support the effort, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will play it a little bit of He's a Panther by Verboten, just to play something that has no sonic similarity to what we're going to hear. But this was your early splash. And I normally would not pick on this, but you know, this has been revisited recently, right? With a musical. Yeah. Care to, <laughs> I mean, where to start. Okay. I started a band when I was 10 years old called Verboten in Evanston, Illinois with my two friends, Zach and Chris, who were neighbors. And we brought in my friend Tracy, who I went to school with as our singer. And we were together for a year and a half. We played, you know, in school gymnasiums and people's basements and living rooms and, Tracy was just very charismatic and personable and, and very immersed in the punk rock scene, as was Chris. And, but Tracy would get us gigs, such as playing at Cubby Bear with Naked Ray Gun and Rights of the Accused in 1983. And, um, we were fortunate to get covered in this punk rock documentary called You Weren't There. And there's a lot of video of the time because my dad was way into taking pictures and taking video, but it all becomes this kind of bigger story that we weren't talking about until 10 years ago when Dave Grohl fully told the story how he's Tracy is his cousin, or at least cousin by name. Their their families are very close. And he came to Evanston when he was young. And so, yeah, it was on Sonic Highways. And then he wrote a chapter about us in his book, Storyteller, and it became a musical. The one production in Chicago did include that song, He's a Panther. So, you know, of course, most of us that we're into music, at least we're trying something at that age. The fact that you actually got out and were in front of people and on TV, you know, that's a pretty amazing happenstance. Then, as we will, we'll eventually get to post-college, Verbo was your band, produced your first album by Bob Mould, in whose band you have now resided for many years. But we're going to get very quickly to split singles. So you had your, where you were trying to, we're going to make it in rock as Verbo, and then you made a twist so that you're going to stay in the business, but you're mostly going to be playing in other people's bands until split single. You decide, I, you know, I could still be a front man. I could just do it, but it's a totally different. You're not the guy who's turning 28 and, oh my God, I got to make it or it's going to fall off a cliff. You already fell off the cliff and you, you're just fine. Am I characterizing this arc approximately correctly? Well, let's start with, I think you're putting a little bit of a German bent on the pronunciation. <laughs> Verboten and Verbo, and and the fact that those two bands were bands that I was in, and the names were so close, is a 
very, very poor decision by my part. Uh, Tracy named Verboten, and I think it's a great band name. I named Verbo, and it was because we were called Skinny when we signed with Epic Records, and that name was already taken. Their legal team had, or somebody on BMG in Europe that was using that name. So we had to very quickly come up with a name. Anyways, I wasn't saying I have to make it when I was 25 and signed I'm to just Epic. Pro- I'm but- just projecting. This is what everybody that I knew when and I'm that clearing age. it up. <laughs> it was more, it more felt like, I mean, the first record that Allison and I made was in 1994. It was an acoustic guitar and cello in 1994. That's not someone that's trying to make it. <laughs> you know, it wasn't folk music. I mean, we were playing through distortion pedals, but it wasn't, I never felt like we were ambitious or did things that were outside of what our vision was. Yeah. And then we signed with them and Bob had come in. I mean, really, Bob had come in before any of that and had made the record with his own money, which is incredible. And then he helped us find labels. He made little J cards and cassettes and sent them to labels himself, which is phenomenal. And uh, we, we were fortunate to get attention and then do two records on that label. But yeah, so Split Single, I think what happened with Split Single is I was playing in all these bands. You know, I was playing with Robert Pollard and playing with Bob and... Liz Fair and these other songwriters that were very talented. And I particularly connected, obviously, Bob Mould is one of my favorite artists of all time. And I'm a huge Got by Voices fan. So playing with them, I felt like, well, if I haven't learned something from these guys, then I'm not paying attention. So I started my own thing, which is Split Single. Yeah. So a big break from 2001 to 2014 or something like that, right? It was the, the gap between albums. We're going to start off by talking about Bitten by the Sound, the song you chose from the third and latest split single full album, Amplificado 2021. you have any comments about where you're at with this project and with this song in particular before we hear it? Yeah, Bitten by the Sound was sonically influenced. I think I was listening to a Spoon record and I loved how raw that sound was. And Britt often does this thing where he plays root chords like a lot of us punk rockers like to do. And then the song is just about discovering music when you're young. Sat in a classroom led by an old nun. Sister thought she knew all about rock and roll. But it's to come who got the best of her when she lied about holding Lennon's hands in her Spotted up from the discs that we spun on the floor I felt the 
So yes, I was reading, of course, having verboten top of mind. Oh, it's almost like you're writing about that time period of discovering rock and roll, you know, so we can, it's like our, the lineup you picked. It's a little rock opera in itself. Were you particularly returning to that era or was this just a general, yeah, I like music. Let me write a song about why I like music kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not sure. It could have been because I was writing songs for, for verboten. Yeah, for verboten the musical which took a lot of reflective energy, for sure. But I've written about that before. I had a, There's a song on the first Blitzingo record called My Heart Is Your Shadow, which is about being... That's more of like a, a relationship paralleling with music and about discovery and love. But yeah, this one's a little bit more direct about how I think the chorus is. And then a kingdom imagined sprouted up from the discs that we spun on the floor. I felt the rush of possible. And that's me not only feeling connected to that music and wanting to be a part of that community, but also feeling like, I think I can do this. I think I can play like this. Yeah, it's interesting that that chorus is so just instantly universal. Like everybody that's really got turned on by rock and roll can get that. But then the verses are very, very specific. I mean, were you like in a Catholic school with a nun as a music teacher or something? Like, is this actually, or is this no, just No, a- that's what makes it crazy. Why was a nun teaching us music? <laughs> She really did. Like she, this must have been, I was in sixth grade. She was, she was like 80, this is like 1982. She had this story about how she met John Lennon and she held his hands in hers and, and gave him reassurance. And I, even as a sixth grader, I was like, I think she's lying. She just very conveniently picked one of the biggest rock stars of all time two years after he died. So no one could refute what she's saying, you know? And it just started this snowball of, stories that she had that was just like, I don't, I'm not down with this person. <laughs> you know, like it was it had nothing to do with religion, although that was very odd that this school brought in a nun to teach us music. But anyways, we didn't get along. You don't know where the beat is until the drums actually, at least I didn't know. Obviously you're counting off and you know, yeah, any thought about that? We're going to, even when the hi-hat just comes in for a few off beats at first, I was like, that's not where I expected it to be. I mean, is that misdirection intentional that we're going to have a little Schrodinger's beat. We don't know where's the on beat until it actually comes in. Yeah, it starts on the floor. I don't think I was intentionally doing that. I have done that before. I think I had just done so many different versions of the song and I wanted, you know, it it goes back and forth. It kind of chooses a bunch of different connecting chords. And uh, that was the arrangement that I came up with. I think I simplified it from the original demo for the record, but it still starts on the floor. So yeah, that would throw some people off. The connection to punk rock in particular, that we're not going to play chords. We're, or we're going to save the chords for the place where it's going to really open up. That we're going to do, it seems like it sounded rhythmically ambiguous. It also sounds harmonically ambiguous that we're just going to, by doing this single note thing, is that just part of the punk ethos? I mean, lots of people do it differently. One thing that I noticed when I was young is to take out the thirds. So we're getting a little bit technical on chord structure and voicings. But if you take the thirds, sound like folk chords. You take the thirds out, it's got a little bit more muscle. Yes. So modal chords is what I think, or or fifth chords or whatever, where you just, it makes it a little more flexible in terms of what am I going to go to next? You know, I think that a lot of heavy metal guys, especially write with their fingers, that it's not using my music theory or, you know, what's going to be the next whole chord, yeah. but it's going to be how far up the neck do I want to slide? And I can do 
you know, you can do half steps, you could do strange leaps, and it all sounds sort of equally natural because you're not going yeah, for a, which a really can, open sound. You can do that with thirds too, but I just think punk rock was kind of like a version of folk music. Folk music was simplified music where anybody could play those three chords and write lyrics over it. And punk rock had a simple kind of approach where most people could play it. They weren't, you didn't have to be a master virtuoso on your instrument to play punk rock. Maybe drummers excluded on that because of the speed. But yeah, so that's just a simple, I don't think there's any moment in Bitten by the Sound where there are thirds. Sometimes I get a little bit crazy and throw a ninth in there. And I'm joking about being crazy, but I tried to keep it st- straight ahead with octaves. And then this, the way, so I understand from another podcast that you do lyrics generally last. So are the rhythms already determined and it's sort of inflexible that you have sat in a classroom led by Anne, old nun, all four wheels lifted at night, you know, these, if you were writing it in, you know, a, a pentameter or whatever, then you would put the accents on the syllables that are accented in speech, but that does not seem to be a concern or is that, are you actively trying to avoid that because it sounds more interesting to spike the... I don't... There, there's less thought into that than okay. <laughs> that you're making it. But I will... I have changed things in the past, whether it's the music or the lyrics based on that syncopation. Is the bass always just a thickening element? You're a bass player. So when you're supporting other people, what are you looking for in terms of... Are you being purposefully like, let's be as minimalist as possible? Or is it, especially in a three-piece, like that's the only thing you have to be a secondary melodic instrument, to play off the vocal. If the vocal's going up, the bass goes down. You have a general bass philosophy here? Depends on the artist. Some artists want it to just keep it real simple, and some people, it's like, do whatever you want. And then I tend to think about when someone's singing, I'm, I'm laying back, and if there's room outside of that, then I'll maybe think of a counter melody or a response, call and response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just kind of depends on the artist and the song. Did you have somebody specifically in mind? I just I just play with a lot oh, of Oh, I mean, I was, I was thinking of this song in particular and how, well, I, mean, I guess... That's Mike Mills and he can do whatever the hell he okay, wants. Okay, so that, that was the question <laughs> is sort of politically, these sound very tightly arranged. And if that's just a matter of you get people that are going to sound tight and you don't have to tell them what to do, or whether it really is a matter of, obviously, if the whole band stops for a second, like you got to direct that. He starts moving a lot more in the chorus. Mm-hmm. There's songs like Stoneheart World on that record where there's a lot of movement or 95% where, you know, Mike just added a lot of movement to it. And we would talk about some of that stuff. I trusted him. The only time anything like that came up was in the beginning of Satellite. He was playing the root and the fifth at the same time. And, and he asked John and I, does that sound too much like REM? which we laughed because we're like, well, you created that sound. You're the inventor of that sound and we love it. So the answer is no, it's not too R.E.M. <laughs> the chorus, it opens up such that his downward movement on the bass throughout the chorus is a key part of the song. A great hook. Let me, let me play that moment. So we have the bass sticking out a little more. We also have an extra guitar. You've definitely attended the Bob Mould school of guitar layering. But as you're saying, that still is not opening up into, you know, you're not playing a, full, a major or a minor chord. Any particular, just lots of compression and place a couple guitars in the stereo space differently. How, any thoughts on how you were producing this just one? Just different parts. Not that much compression, but my friend Dan Liu came up with this great guitar part for that chorus. I wanted to highlight that. 
because the chords are just D, A, and then G9. So very simple resolve, but his, his guitar added some, some cool tension to it. And then the end of that is the hook. Yeah, any thought on this? We're going to have it focus on that. And then any thoughts on where that comes in the process? Do you write linearly through the song? Or are you picking pieces that you've recorded on your phone here and there and connect them together? How did this one come together? Yeah, probably the stuff on my phone. You know, I probably had the verse and the chorus. That's usually when I like, okay, I got something here. And then I'll write a bridge or whatever later or work on the arrangement later and the lyrics. But coming out of that chorus, I felt like it needed one more ramp back into the verse. And that's what the da 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 And sometimes it's about like, how do we change this up? Because I don't want it to be too monotonous. You know, just a simple little approach to songwriting where you're trying to keep it engaging and not too linear. Yeah, it sounds like punctuation, that da na chika chika. It's not like, yeah. ooh, I got a new idea for a song. It goes da na chika chika. You know, that, that's obviously not the first thing. It is a passing yeah, because then when it when it opens back up into the verse, it's dun 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 dun. It's just so much more driving. It just it's a setup, right? That despite the fact that it's a passing thing, it is super catchy in the context. You know that, that okay. actually works very well. It is not just oh the drummer's going to play a fill or whatever. You know that's normally what yeah. you. Uh, which there are very few drum fills that you're like, wow, that drum fill. That's why I like the song is because the because it went boom, boom, boom. Like there are big star songs like that because he stretches the fill over three times as long as it should be or something. But typically, yeah. So this is sort of serving that same purpose. And then the na na na's in there again. You didn't need that, but let's add a little bit of extra melodicism. So it's not purely a burnout. It's a little punk thing. No, I'm going to sing a pretty. I guess that's the contrast is that you got these punk gestures on guitar, but you're you're not singing like a punker here, right? Yeah, I mean, I rarely do. I'm just influenced by punk. Yeah. With the texture, just continuing a little on this, going into the second verse, it seems like you've done something with the kick drum or something to ramp it up. I mean, is it just going back exactly where it was before or is it adding another layer of low end, do you recall? The verse is the same, but we added shakers really loud. This is something that I I go to the map with a lot of engineers about, and I, I will get out those Beatle records. And most listeners do not hear percussion. They feel percussion. And I like shakers loud. I feel like it's not getting in the way of the vocals, the guitars, maybe a little bit the drums, but it's a feel thing that I only on the second verse. So it's like a little bit of a lift to give the song some upward mobility. And is it, is it eighth or 16th notes, the shaker? I'm not, not remembering. <laughs> Eight, I guess. Okay. So it's not even like often I use shakers because you could do it 16th notes and it's just a very different feeling to have a little thing that's jittering there as opposed to asking your drummer, you know, play like Devo, play, play that the fast 16th note thing. But yes, I love it's such a standard unless your drummer is crazy and has multiple snares and plays woodblock a lot. You know, it's just kind of a. Everybody knows what the drum kit is supposed to sound like. And actually, you know, if you're using a drum machine, you don't necessarily do that. You have, I want to cover the ranges, but you don't have to use the actual drum sounds. It's just like, what is playing the role of the snare? But without going to the electronic world to add percussion to just make it sound like it is actually part of what the person is doing with their their third arm or something. 
Well, it's a record, so you can yeah. do whatever <laughs> you course. want. I wasn't trying to make it sound like John was doing it. I just thought, oh, this song needs this right here. More of like a production decision. Sure. I don't know. I, I used to play with a guitarist who was, was minimalist in this, in the way that I associate with some of the mood stuff, who was like, you should always be able to picture the three guys on the stage doing their thing. And I just thought that's not how people listen to music. This is, <laughs> it does not have to sound like a live thing. It is, in fact, it's sort of better if it is, is your mindscape and you don't even know that these are coming from human beings necessarily. It's just sounds coming from different, you know, that, that is the more painterly of creating stuff. I mean, you mostly stick to a three piece or a four piece, you know, but yet, you know, obviously you're fine with some sweetening. Yeah, I wouldn't consider Bob Mold minimalist, but I think that, like you said, like it doesn't have to be what people are picturing on a stage. It's a record, so you can do whatever and then worry about it later, how you're going to represent that or present that live. And I'm playing in trios and four pieces, but single for economical reasons. <laughs> you know, it's like, I also prefer that. I mean, I, it's not like I'm dying to have a seven piece version of split single, but it is advantageous to have a mobile We Jam Econo approach. Let's stop for some sponsor messages. I want to tell you about Songfinch. Now, you're probably looking for holiday gifts right now, and you don't want a generic gift that's just going to create clutter. If you've got someone important to your life, you want to tell them how special they are to you, let me recommend a gift that's truly unique, a professionally recorded song crafted just for them. That's right. Songfinch is connected with over a thousand artists in various styles and genres. And through a simple four-step process, which I have undergone, you tell them who the song is for, you provide some personal details, let them know the type of song you want, they will match you with an artist, or you could pick a Songfinch artist if you know who you're looking for. And in just four to seven days, this artist will pour their heart into writing, recording, and producing your original song. I have submitted my requirements to them. I can't wait to hear what they come up with. I will reveal it in future episodes of this podcast as I do more of these ads. In addition to commissioning the song, you can pay a little more to get a vinyl record of the song or pay them to put it on all the streaming services. Songfinch guarantees you will love your original song or they'll work with you until you do. Their community of artists has created over 300,000 songs for Songfinch and there are these great reaction videos online. You got to see these. You will see why Songfinch is the ultimate gift. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song on Spotify for free so you can listen to your new favorite song anywhere you go. Go to songfinch.com slash N-E-M and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free. That's $50 value. This offer is only available for my listeners through the URL songfinch.com slash N-E-M. That's songfinch.com slash N-E-M. And be sure to share your song with me. Yeah, I, w I wonder sometimes if I have the ability to have extra people, I like to fill out the sound live, but I wonder if that's very smart. <laughs> that the way people are listening to something live, particularly in a rock setting. I mean, it's different if it's like a little folk band and you got your little mandolin or, you know, the Pogues where you, you know, it's nine people and they're supposed to be this sort of feeling of a party going on. But if it is your distorted guitar and your full blown drums and your bass that is making things shake, why would you want to try to challenge an engineer to, to fit a keyboard in there or my acoustic guitar, which is what I will try to insert into that or in the nineties, I should say. Yeah. If you have a choice to have a lead guitar, if you have a second guitarist on the live set, do you do that or you're just a... Uh... Yeah, I like to have another guitarist for sure, yeah. I don't think there's a ton of solos, but it's more of just like, yeah, different parts, adding different colors. Yes, I guess both making individual parts more colored, in which case, how 
much of a pedal guy are you? I wasn't forever. And then there's another Chicago guitarist named Greg Saran that I've known for a long time who got me involved in touring with Sunny Day Real Estate. Greg is their main guitarist, but he can't do all the shows. So he brought me in to, so for the last year, I've been subbing in on different shows for them. And really, Greg, like his approach is, is heavy on pedals and sounds and walking into that world has me now into it. I find myself like somebody will post their pedal board and I'll be zooming in. I never did that before a year ago. (laughs) So I'm now enjoying that. I don't think I'll ever get way into it. I'm more of a, I try to put as much energy as I can into songwriting. And Mm -hmm. I I feel like if it's a great song that the pedals aren't that big of a deal, but of course it can add to the decorations that you use. And yeah, more so than ever, I have been getting into that. I guess that was the question is, is it better? Do you see it as it, it is decorative and probably that means have the second guitarist do it or have somebody still be giving you the rock and roll that you want. But then, yes, okay, have a chorus or a flanger or whatever ridiculous warbly thing on the outside. When it's a live situation, I just I just want to be thinking about singing lead and playing rhythm and banter in between songs and just sort of being the leader. There are people that can wear all those hats and I'm just not, I'm not one of them. <laughs> all right, let's get monolith out there from the first split single album 2014's fragmented world this is the one you picked it's a pretty short one where were you at with this why why this song in particular this is not the most decorated song but it's it's very direct it has that that punk rock thing still this song is bewildering to me on some levels and i wrote it very quickly i wrote it after we recorded fragmented world so i, I recorded that with with Britt daniel on bass, John Worcester on drums. And um, it was tracked and mixed. Everything was finished. And I just recorded some demos with a guy named Bo Sorensen, who's the, the engineer that's worked on the last five Bob Mould records. He was, We were in town working on a Bob Mould record, and I asked Bo if he had an extra day to stay in town. So we went to a studio and recorded two songs, two new songs that I had, I had come up with. And this was one of them. So this is what you hear on the record is the actual demo. And I'm so proud of that. <laughs> I think it sounds awesome. And then from a songwriting standpoint, this song, this is the only time I've done this, but the first verse sings the lyrics and the melody under certain chords. The second verse are the exact same lyrics and same melody with entirely different chords behind it, which when I say it out loud sounds pretty extreme, but I think it works. Again, bewildering me. Uh, the song has no bridge and it has a longer instrumental outro than I usually put on songs. And the only decoration on that, I think it is a flanger or maybe a phaser and just three single notes doom, 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 that rings out over the end. Yeah, it's just such a different song for me, but I'm real proud of it. It's always fun to play live. And in fact, I just did a three and a half week solo tour opening up for Bob Mould. And before I left for that tour, I asked my wife, I was just kind of, I couldn't figure out what type of set list to do. And I just, I said to her point blank, I was like, what are my good songs? <laughs> and she just got out her phone and she, Monolith was the first one she said. And I just, I had not been doing that acoustic or at solo shows. And so I figured out a completely different approach to it that works for solo shows now. That song is just, uh, it's got so much energy and urgency. I'm, I'm real proud of that one.
interesting rhythmically. Yes, it's in four four, but it sort of has three and then five. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, one, two. So it sounds like, wait, is this an odd time signature? No, no, it all evens out. In fact, the drum is just playing straight. But yeah, very it's a great drum part. That's Tim Remus on drums. It's such a great drum part. We did not use a click track on that. So it's got a little, it's a little bit looser than some of my other recordings. I like to record with click mostly for economic reasons. It's just, you know, when you're making projects with different artists and you only have a certain amount of time with them, the grid gives you options. You can cut and paste and you can reassert and, and just kind of edit and for people like me that are on very small budgets to make records, that can be very, that can be a great tool. But that song was recorded as a demo. So I was less concerned about that. And then I, I was just so happy with the way it came out. I actually sent the song to Bob Mould before that record came out. And I, I was like, should I put this song on this record? And he said, you should put it on the record and in a prominent position. Mm. <laughs> I'll never, I'll never forget the, the way he worded that. And so I put it second. The riff that you, once the, the intro stops, let me actually hear some of where you're singing over it. So you're trying to continue the same thing, but then do this v- sort of brittle lead guitar line that's that's just doubling, harmonizing what you're singing. It does play the major seventh on the first chord, but otherwise it's not playing what I'm singing now. I mean, it's rhythmically matching you anyway, so that there's at least, that's the effect that I'm getting, <laughs> that, is, that you're filling out the middle a little bit so that it's not just, I mean, it could have just been keep that bass and drums and then have you sing over that, but it just would seem off balance without something else poking out of the middle. Snare drum was too active in the, in the intro to keep doing that. So the drum beat squares out. Okay. I feel like I should not pick on which syllables you're emphasizing or whatever, because clearly that's not what it's about, right? Terindu, my, you know, Dragon Cranes around my Kate, you know, just these things that are a little, uh, was there a da, 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 da. And then you just inserted words on top of that or. Yeah. Or, I, I okay. sing dummy lyrics. Yep. So if it's on the, yeah, if it's on my phone, it's just, I call it dummy lyrics where a lot of N's and S's. So it sounds like I'm singing English, but I'm not. Or just another breath, another way, you know, that, that you're doing this. Would there be a question of how many words do I like that? Was that always going to be one word or, Hey, there's four syllables there. I think I had the melody in place. So So it was just a decision about whether or not I fit words into that or just extend a syllable. But it sounds at most two words, it wouldn't be blah, 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 you know, four words in that it would be at, at most do the wave and then put one more separate word at the end. Anyway. Yeah. The fact that you are satisfied is it kind of pulling teeth to get lyrics out of you? Like I usually have way more. I will dump on a page and then I'll have to throw away a good chunk of it. And the fact that, no, no, I could just do the same lyrics for the second verse. Was that just because you wanted to have the consistency with the different chords? Or was there really just what you're wanting to say is just this thing frozen in time such that you can repeat exactly the same words? I sometimes do that on demos and, and think, well, I'll, I'll write the second verse. When I get to the record. I mean, are there times where then, okay, you're doing this live a bunch of times. Wow. You know, there's a thing I could say, let me actually, so you write the second verse a year later, or would that ever, ever happen? Because you were not in the headspace you were originally and you, there's something sacrosanct about that. It happens all the time where I'm writing lyrics or rewriting lyrics in the studio or right before we 
I record the vocal. But never afterward. And it's not pulling teeth. It's just the slower moving engine than the music part. I mean, I guess to the point of we need to finish this record. Do you have lyrics to this or not? Like, is it, is it never? Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, totally. Yeah, I'm not the only one. I would tell you that. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. That happens a lot. I mean, and one thing I've learned from that's different from my writing when I was younger is that not only is it okay, but I encourage rewrites. You know, like a lot of times I write a song and then I take some space from it and I come back to it and, and I think, is that telling the story that I wanted it to? And very often it's not, or it needs modifications. There are a number of songs from my 20s where I wish I had done that. And so I try to keep that in mind with Split Single. All right, let's hear the bit. The intro comes back, but now it has a, a newer guitar and then this same lyrics, different chords, second verse. I guess I didn't notice those were totally different chords because you're still that middle guitar that has come in that is playing off the vocal is still doing the same thing, right? But it's just something different underneath it. So it's like you've added a little depth. The bass. Yeah, the bass is playing completely, which is really the chords. I mean, that's when I play it solo, I'm sw- I'm totally changing the chords underneath it. But you can't always do that. You know, it doesn't work with every song. And I don't think I'd ever tried it before or since, but it was just, it felt like that second verse needed something. And it ended up being a pretty drastic decision, but I, I really like the way it, it ended up. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, that when you don't have a full chord in the first place, what counts as a new chord? No, there's there's definitely chords in the first verse. A different bass note. And that's, you know, it's a tweak, but it's still, I consider it the same chord with, with some embellishment as, as opposed to when you don't have a full, a third in the first place. There are definitely chords in the first verse. Okay. But what works is that the lead vocal and that one guitar also work with different chords underneath it. I'm trying to remember if there is background vocals on either of these songs that we have played so far. Definitely on Bitten by the Sound. Oh yeah, you've got the whole ahs on the Bitten by the Sound. I meant, meant to ask you about that, of sort of balancing out when you're going to have somebody actually singing with you versus this ahs, or is it always, are you again sort of writing it like, somebody's going to have to do this live, so I want the ahs to then switch to singing over me, or is, are they really just like studio different layers? We don't even do it live. Mike Mills was very sweet to send me backing vocal ideas. So he recorded those in Athens and sent them. And we basically didn't talk about it at all. It reminds me of like the Turtles or something. He's awesome. He's one of the best background singers in rock, in my opinion. And um, that was just an idea he had. I thought it sounded great. And then I did a higher harmony on my main lead vocal, I think on the third chorus. Okay. Back to Monolith, this is not one that was going to lend itself to let's bring in the choir later. You know, it just doesn't have a place. I mean, you do, the stillness has no gray. The second time, you know, it takes off into the stratosphere a little bit. The first time you actually stop very briefly the whole song to get us back into it. Second time, not doing that just to take us into the, I had put an instrumental verse, right? Is that how you were picturing it? It's like, I call it an outro. It's also different chords in the, than either verse. (laughs) So enjoy that. (laughs) When I'm playing with people, because split single can have different live band members, this is the tricky one. 
It's only two minutes, but it's, it's a bit of a maze. It is through composed. <laughs> there we go. That main guitar riff that was supporting the vocal, dee, 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 like it actually seems like it could just continue on. <laughs> you could just go, dee, 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 and just that's kind of what I thought was happening when it starts like that. That we're entering some broken record, some sort of, yeah, what was your thought on you just didn't want to write a third verse? Or this was, as you say, the outro. And so I guess if it was just the outro, why does it do so much of what the verse does? Well, it's different chords in the verse, but maybe sonically it has some similarities. I just didn't feel like it needed to come back to the chorus again. Mm -hmm. And I think I was listening to like Deer Hunter or something, some band that was just very linear. And I often have to remind myself to just leave space occasionally. Yeah. Well, and then likewise, the solo 156... Did you say earlier that that was keyboard or that's just a guitar lick? It's a guitar. I consider it more a decoration than a solo. It's just three notes. Sure. It sounds like we're going to start the solo, but nope, it's just a riff. And then it comes back again and then we're done. So very nice and minimalist, but still colorful. Lyrically, we haven't really talked about this. You know, this also sounds like a, I was going to say enlivened by rock and roll, reading the same thing into it, but the negative side of that. The, uh, uh, it's just, nah, it's just depression. It's just plain old depression. I don't want to see another. Frightly, frightly depression. <laughs> I'm saying musically. This is not, you know, well, too far down. I mean, that's a nice, you know, like if it was all dark and dark. Yeah. I shouldn't say sprightly. There's, you have to have major chords for it to be sprightly. You have to have something, but it's stark, but it's still, it's in a very energetic depression. Is that a way of reacting to the depression? Propulsive. Propulsive. All right. Yes, I guess it doesn't actually reach. It has more of the, you know, just like I was talking about the, the, the broken record, the stuck in a sort of anal retentive, that way of channeling depression as opposed to a punk rock, you know, we're going to have a trash can ending. This is somehow going to explode and get out of, because that's sort of a natural thing to do of we're going to have a stark rock and roll thing that is channeling maybe as a reaction to my depression. And, but somehow madness has to explode. No, the madness never explodes. The mad is always is very contained here. It just stops. I don't know. What, what is your thought on how mental illness relates to which rhythms you pick? I don't know. I mean, I, it seems if I'm going to, on real simple terms, like every breath you take, it's a really beautiful song about stalking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like people uh, mistakenly play that at their wedding all the time because they think, oh, this sounds nice. And then you listen to the lyrics and it's like, it's, that's, I don't think it's what you think it's about. And this, I don't think monolith is that tricky or that misleading, but it's something that I hear a lot in music where the melody might be bright, but the lyrics are not. Did you even know when you wrote this music that, oh, this sounds good as a depression song? I'm just not even thinking I need a depression song. I'm just, that's, those are the lyrics that came out at the moment. Okay. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. All right, well, let's finally go back in time. Verbo, the first album under that name. So the second album of the three, Jason and Allison being the first one. Chronicles 1997, the one that Bob Mould produced. 
fan club, the song you picked, the first song off of there. Why this one? Where were you at at this time? What, what do you want to say about this song? Now, here's a song where I think the music was trying to match the psychosis of the character that's singing the song. And that's why that record is called Carnicles, because it's mostly not personal. There's a couple personal songs on there, but it's mostly storytelling, like the second track, Chronicles of Agent Kid or Man in Mile High, which is, I think is track three. And Fan Club is just about, you know, a fan that wants their rock stars to be what they want them to be. You know, I had your sticker on my trapper keeper is one of the lines. There's another song that starts on a different beat. One, two, three. I just thought that felt like real, like teasing and bullying and just how some fanatics can take it to the extreme. This person is taking it to the extreme, this character in the song.
so it was interesting to have those two notes to start it off because I would associate that more if that's the end of the riff. If the riff is normally like, well, then put the ba ba as the beginning. But no, that's just that's just a cameo. It just happens just to punch you in the face to wake you up. And now here's the song. It's the 90s, Nirvana. I'm not saying, oh gosh, you're just doing what is the the thing that was uh, stylish at the time. But it's got that nice, loud, quiet, loud thing in here. Plus, you got Allison playing cello. We've had Allison under Helen Money has her own episode in this series, I will point folks to. But yeah, so that when the band goes quiet, it doesn't just have to be, let's play chick, chick, chick on our guitars. It's no, we have an actual orchestral instrument that can color that and make it a whole different thing that you would never hear in Nirvana, say. Well, they had a cellist on some songs, but it was more about her playing through a stack and having a distortion pedal. And really, like, there's more sort of power pop and, you know, there's more cheap trick in my songs than there is grunge or alternative or whatever you want to call it. And making a record like this in 1997 was very conveniently after the wave. <laughs> I guess that's true, that this was at the point of, you know, down with P, you're down with me, you know, where the style was starting to parody itself, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, and there's songs on this record that are completely acoustic, Execution of a Jester, Distance Between Us. There are a couple songs, I mean, if you're going to put loud guitar songs by someone influenced by the Beatles and Cheap Trick and have it be produced by Bob Mould, there's going to be moments that sound like Sugar. Of course, and I love Sugar. I wasn't bummed about that. But I learned so much from Bob about guitar tone and amps and miking and production overall on that record. I think I recorded all my guitars on a Princeton, which is a very tiny little Fender amp. And if you just have a Strat and a a distortion pedal and you play through something like that with someone who knows how to do it, it's real simple. And there's little tricks like on a Strat, if you go to the lead position... But you put the tone down on five, it's pretty great. People go, oh, the strats, it's too, too high-end stuff. We'll just roll off the tone a little bit. And it's real thick in the mid-range area and can be pretty powerful. Yeah, I'm glad you picked this one and sort of made me look back and pay attention to it because I was initially drawn to like the distance between us, the, the more acoustic, more cello-intensive tunes. And this one struck me on first lesson as, that's a little too Bob Mould. I don't, I don't know if I... If I... <laughs> He would never use those chords. In fact, I think Bob didn't understand that song. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was our mutual friend, Josh Greer, who was like, this song kicks ass. And so Bob gave it a little bit more thought to it. Because I joined the Youth Explosion in particular. Sounds like, oh, that could be, you know, a Bob song, you know. But you're saying, no, he would not recognize that as that whatsoever. I don't know about the lyrics. I'm just, I mean, chord no, the, wise. The, the melody is what, yeah. There's some comic relief in there. I sold you back two cash, three credit. That's an old CD reference. I mean, was there any particular pop star that you had in mind here? Or was there- Yeah. Yeah. And I was wrong about both of them. Rick Ocasek and Joe Strummer. <laughs> it was a little tiny piece of me. I was never ever that crazy. I took the lyrics to a whole other level, but I remember seeing Rick Ocasek on a late night TV show and just the difference between those early Cars records and what he was doing at that point bothered me, which is absolutely silly. He's still a great artist. Who cares what, you know, like that, that, that stuff doesn't matter. And Joe Strummer, I, yeah, it's, 
is that little piece of me that wanted him to be doing the clash. And that's just unreasonable. People should be able to create and do whatever they want. And he was doing great. And he ended up making great records at the end of his career. But the character in this song, it started there, but the character is way beyond me and way beyond how I felt about anybody ever. <laughs> Rick Ocasek was sort of one of my early core influences. And given that his whole aesthetic was do not over emote on stage, you know, so seeing it as I learned to soak up your passion. I mean, I guess by the time, you know, he was producing Weezer and things, he'd sort of... Like I said, it was not specifically about anybody. All right. Yeah. I wonder when people get really obsessed about a band, kind of exactly what drug this is serving up to them. You know, for me, it was, I like played in orchestras and I liked arranging stuff and I liked David Foster arrangements. And so when I heard the Heartbeat City, that was sort of my first, it was my introduction to the cars because that's what age I was, not the old stuff. But then projecting back through all of it, it was just so tightly produced and well. And so it sort of something in my engineering kind of brain was set off as opposed to the Pink Floyd or, you know, the other things that are the more Dionysian, more this is what I'm going to escape into. So, you know, it's a very strange drug to I hadn't met that many people are like the cars was their central band because it's it's so sort of anti rock and roll in a certain way. Well, let's bring in some of the musical pieces here. It's not just on the offbeat. It's there's a little rhythmic crafting to it that, you know, where let's have little things pop out and some of its little things on the bell of the cymbal or or toms that you know, how we're going to actually construct this to make it sound a little... The drummer's name is David Sycott. He's he's amazing. And um, I just remember him playing that beat and going, that's the mood. <laughs> you know, that's the feel of it. I think he did, maybe in the second verse, he hits a cymbal bell. Yeah. But it's pretty minimal. I mean, that was recorded down in Austin, Texas, where Bob lived at the time. And we recorded the drums at Arlen Studios, which is a huge studio, because where we were recording, which is a house, and I can't remember the name of the studio, but it's where Uncle Tupelo made that last record. Mm -hmm. He plays so hard that the room couldn't handle him. So we had to do drums in a different studio. Unfortunately, just a phone call and a day away, we could make that happen. But he recorded the drums for that entire record in seven hours. Wow. Yeah, he's amazing. I assume you've been playing this live <laughs> together? A little bit, yeah. But with Bob coming in and arrangement stuff. He's that good of a drummer. Working with him as producer, does it even matter the exact things you worked out as a live four or five piece, whatever it was at the times? Yeah, yeah, he wasn't. I didn't mean to imply that he was super heavy handed, but like I remember on holiday, there's this turnaround right before the verse where he's like, we could use a guitar part here. And the young person that I was wanted him to write a guitar part so I could say, oh, I playing a guitar part written by Bob Mould. But he insisted that I come up with it, which is even better because I wrote it and I came up with it, but he encouraged it. So there's a lot of moments like that where you're like, this could use something here. And then we'd just kind of brainstorm and I would come up with something. Yeah, I heard one spot. So about 114, right? I joined the Youth Explosion. It sounded like the sort of like trumpet-like extra guitar blatting out in between that that sounded like the kind of stuff that I've heard you refer to in another interview as subliminal layering that Bob would add to mm -hmm. 
thicken things up. Hit guitar stabs on the snare drum. And it's like stuff Tom Worman would do on Cheap Trick Records. Had your sticker on my Trapper Keeper. There's a, a cello scrape. That's just adding to the madness, you know, right? It's like it sounds like someone losing it. And uh, Allison's part for that is just perfect. And is that purely only something you could really do in the studio? Or is she affected such that, okay, so she can pull off that sort of level of... Uh, it just seems like a big challenge. Like, I understand what a great formula it is to just you playing acoustic and her playing. But then now we're going to add giant distorted guitars, but yet still have a cello that can peek out. And is that just because she mastered... She had a distortion pedal too. She, yeah, okay. So she's being the lead guitarist, basically. Counter melody. Let's play some of the bridge here. We talked about the lyrics of that being sort of a comic moment, but it's musically, what do you think it's doing there? I mean, it's a little relief from the craziness. Yeah, it's finally some resolve. It's just pretty and it has resolve. The rest of the song has so much tension. And then, but you really don't care, really don't care. Like, let's establish sort of a new, sort of an outro. It could have been a guitar riff, but let's make it a vocal thing. And he thought about that as a gesture. So the very first lyric of the song, Bah, and then poured up, help your record, fit over that. So you could layer it. So it's like surrender. If I'm just going to keep on making cheap trick references, <laughs> you know, mama's all right. Daddy's all right. That's just one way to find the peak of a song is for two parts to you bring back an older part and then you introduce a new one. And that, you know, really don't care, really don't care has a lot of major resolve to it. Really don't care, really don't care. So it's as simple as that. This is a song about music, right? It's about a person who likes music. And, you know, as you've been describing it, you're describing like a normal song where it's about the emotions of the person. It's not referential to the sort of music that they were into, the sort of music that they want to hear, as if the song itself is serving the narrator's need. Is there any of that kind of self-referential? The fact that you're writing about music, does it then, you want to reflect the kind of music that you're writing about in the music. I think the character is too wrapped up in nostalgia. You know, I think that they are seeing these artists that they look up to change and try different things. And they're so angry about that, that they're going to sell the music back, <laughs> you know, which is, and then you really don't care, really don't care. It's like, yeah, they don't, they don't care. <laughs> it's just a, a fan that has, is, is being very pouty and stomping their feet. Well, I'm happy to say that I don't think anybody is going to be hearing your new split single stuff and saying, wow, Jason, he really you know, had some grit in his early days. And now he's like, it's remarkably consistent and very sharp songwriting. So it's been a pleasure to spend time with the music over the past couple of weeks. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. To say goodbye here, I wanted to introduce your last release, which is just on the Bandcamp page. It's not on the stream service, this Kayado mostly acoustic versions, but this is clearly not, you know, you also have some live stuff pointed there, but this has got overdub choral backing vocals. It's got acoustic. It's got uh, Allison not only playing cello, but playing piano. I had picked the last track off that, Blood Break Ground. Do you want to just say a few words about this and this version of it before we say goodbye here? I was recording Amplificado, the, the most recent split single record, and 
thought that some of the songs would sound nice with acoustic versions and um, change the key on them, change the tempo and ask different people to play. I think there's synthesizer on 95%. There's strings on nothing, nothing you can do to end this love. And Allison plays on satellite and blood break ground. And um, yeah, she, she, same thing where she took the recording and just sent it back and she added that piano thing. I, I just loved it so much. All right. And of course I'm now, Oh, so what is Callado in Spanish? Well, it's the, the quieter version of these songs. So that exactly. <laughs> All right. Exactly.
Thanks so much to Jason. Very good songwriter. Seems like just a very handy guy to have around. Since we recorded this interview, he has appeared on Late Night with Seth Meyers, among other places, with Michael Shannon, the acclaimed actor, to promote their performances of R.E.M.'s Murmur album, which are awesome. I will link to their TV performance as well as other live appearances of Jason from the blog post associated with this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure, if you happen to be hearing this, say, on the Partially Examined Life feed, that you subscribe directly to Nakedly Examined Music so there is no delay in your hearing of the episodes. If you want to hear all the episodes ad-free, get my episode notes. You can go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Patreon also lets you hear the supporter feed through Spotify now through a deal they have with them. Another way to support me if you are currently listening to this on Apple Podcasts is just Click that subscribe button that will then upgrade you to the paid tier of support on Apple Podcasts, and that membership will actually cover ad-free versions of three of my podcasts without your having to resubscribe to a different feed. It just magically transforms those episodes into their ad-free versions. So that's nice. But more important than supporting me, support the artists that I feature on here. Go to splitsinglemusic.com to see where you can view Jason live or buy his albums or whatever. I would love to hear from you as to what guests I should have on the show. Maybe you or a musician might want to be on the show. You can email me, mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I welcome any feedback. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Winston Meyer, signing off.